and welcome to another episode of the Jack Hughes podcast. And today, I am absolutely delighted to, to be speaking to Roderick Yap. Roderick is a former officer in the Royal Marines who has made the jump into the corporate world. Roderick is now the director of his own company, Leadership Forces, and, is, and he is the founding director. Leadership Forces is a specialist operational excellence and leadership development consultancy. His aim is to make the strategy happen by coaching and building the capability of an organisation's leadership. Roderick's operational excellence programme takes the principles of high performance from high risk environments and applies them to the organisations he works with. The impact of this has an increase in performance, productivity and accountability, which typically generates a time saving of around 20% a day per person. Roderick, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Jack. Great to meet you. Great to talk. Thanks for coming on. So, first of all, Royal Marine to the corporate world. How did that happen? First, so, why the Marines to start with, I suppose? Start from the beginning. Yeah, sure. So, I guess the, the main reason I joined uh, the Royal Marines was the sort of sense of challenge. Um, I wanted to be tested, um, and I wanted to see whether I was good enough. Um, and there are a few sort of things that kind of steered me towards a career in the armed forces. Um, my father was in the foreign office, so sort of growing up, I saw um, a lot of Navy ships. Um, I went along and spoke to the pilots when, you know, various RAF planes were coming to visit, sort of duty stations and so on and so forth. Um and I sort of had this kind of idea that the armed forces might make an interesting career. Um, and then I sort of looked at, then I, I originally looked at the Air Force. Uh, I sort of wanted to be a pilot. Um, but if I'm being really honest, I didn't have the buzz that everyone else did when I started to do a little bit of flying at university. You know, everyone talked about how great it was, how much they enjoyed it. And what I realized about myself was that Flying is very much an interaction between man and machine, and I didn't enjoy that as much as everyone else. I enjoyed the interactions between people. So I started to look more towards other opportunities in the armed forces, um, became interested in the Marines, um, and suddenly sort of you know looked at it in comparison almost with every other grad scheme, and I was like, hang on a sec, these guys are going to put me through 15 months of training, uh, and my first job is going to be line managing, leading 30 people, and potentially going all over the world with them compare that to any other grad scheme and just doesn't even come close in terms of development, responsibility, accountability, um, all of the things that I wanted to do. So that was why I joined. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, I see a lot of people going into uh, university or thinking about university and finishing their A-levels. And to me, it, it, the writing's on the wall. Like, There's no better opportunity like you just described. You can, you're going to get real experiences and you're going to um, learn along the way. So, what did you get up to in the Marines? What was your your core role or responsibilities? And can you explain a bit about that? Sure. So, I served for seven years. I joined in two thousand and five. I left in two thousand and twelve. Um, my first job straight out of training, like most other officers, was as a troop commander. I went to forty commando. Um, and deployed to Afghanistan on Herrick 7. So I went to uh, initially Fob Inkerman and then Sangin um, and conducted the sort of full spectrum of operations up and down the, the Hellman Valley. Um, I then did a few other sort of 
jobs after that. I was an OC of the commando display team, so I did a job in recruitment for a while. I worked for the Navy for six months. Um, and then I was second in command of K Company 4-2 Commando. So I did a few sort of various bits and pieces before deciding in 2010 that I wanted to go on selection. Um, unfortunately, I came off. Um, uh, certainly no shame in that. Very glad to have done it. Um, and then towards the end of my year, uh, at the end of my career, um, I sort of specialised in counter-piracy and boarding operations. And I was lucky enough to be fast-balled out to Libya in 2011 when the Gaddafi regime collapsed um, and various EU personnel were trapped uh, trapped in sort of ports around or port in cities in Libya. Um, and we went in with HMS York and extracted them, which was sort of a real highlight. Uh, and then towards the end of my career, I, again, I, as I mentioned, I'm in, I specialised in, in counter-piracy. I did a three-month tour off the coast of Somalia as the intelligence officer and then did the same tour the following year, but as the um, fleet contingent troop commander, um, which basically is uh, a role that takes four boarding teams, puts them all together um, to make this uh, quite impressive capability in terms of um, counter-piracy operations. Uh, while we were there, uh, we did uh, we arrested quite a large number of pirates, um, handed them over to uh, the Seychelles War authorities for prosecution, um, and we also recaptured a 55,000-ton container ship called the MV Monte Cristo from Pirate Control. Um, and I was lucky enough to, you know, to end up in Rome and in the Seychelles as a witness of the prosecution. And I think, you know, I, I consider myself extremely lucky to have had the career I, I've had. You know, I absolutely loved it. Um, it was just, you know, fantastic. Um, and in terms of uh, the career I wanted to have, I, you know, I consider myself extremely glad and extremely lucky to have gone through everything I've been through. Yeah, I was just listening to you then. I was thinking how small, especially the, the Marines and Army, uh, sorry, the Marines and Navy are because... During that time, I was on HMS Sutherland, which had some crossover with HMS York. And then I was part of, um, based out of Faz Lane on RFAs, doing anti-piracy as well. So you never know, we might have crossed paths in one form or another. Um, I'm sure we did. <laughs> yeah, and here we are today. So what triggered you know, that decision to leave? Was there one particular moment where you thought, you know, I've, I've achieved everything I want to, it's time to leave? Or you know, was it just a natural natural progression and it just your time is coming to an end um i don't think there was any one thing it was kind of a sort of more of a, a drip drip effect if you like um i met my wife or my now wife in just as i was about to go on selection in sort of 2009 2010 um and during my time at 42 commando um basically my year there was post one afghanistan tour and before the sort of you know the kind of beat up and optag training that um, pr uh, pr comes before another Afghan tour yeah. and I was there as sort of company to IC and we just didn't really have any resources to do much training um, you know we were constantly under pressure uh, for you know to, to not spend money um, there's only so much you can do sort of on Dartmoor um, and, and I just sort of felt, you know, we're making the very best we can with very limited resources. Um, and one of the sort of more senior uh, officers, a sort of late entry commission guy said to me, he said, you know, when we're out of the Afghanistan, 
routine, this is what the call will be like. And I suddenly thought, you know, he's absolutely right. You know, defence is not going to be something that we'll be invested in unless we are fighting somewhere. Um, and I sort of had the sense that, you know, post uh, the extraction from Afghanistan, would it be as good as it was? Or, you know, what would the, you know, what was the future going to hold? And I sort of got this sense that um, post Afghanistan, there was going to be no political or public will to send the military overseas and to, to maintain the sort of level of operational tempo that we've seen since 9-11. And, and I started to think, well, hang on a sec, if that's the case, then why would I want a company command of 130 men on exercise versus the experience of, you know, troop commanding on operations? So I guess this sort of sense that the jobs are had to become uh, less less interesting. me. Um, added to the fact that, you know, I, I met my wife in my sort of late, late 20s, um, and it became more and more difficult to sort of go away uh, from her. Um, I knew I wanted to have a family. I've got two young children now, a four-year-old girl and, and, and a 20-year-old, 20-month-old boy. And I just, you know, I couldn't spend that much time away from them. So almost, you know, the, the reasons you join because, you you know, you, you have a complete, complete, you're completely independent and you don't sort of owe anything to anyone almost become the reasons you leave when you sort of put that domestic lens onto it. So those are the kind of um, those are the kind of reasons, and I guess it all comes together in sort of a bit of a perfect storm around the age of thirty, and you and you reach this decision point where you're like, well, I'm young enough to go out and do something else and build a career in the private sector, or I should stay here and get a pension and then not have to worry about you know not have to worry about the sort of you know earning money or anything like that you know make a make a good thing of it in in the military. Um, and I chose that actually, you know, the, the right thing for me to do was to to leave at that point, having done everything I'd done. That sounds sensible and more than fair enough. Um, so going back to that mindset of, you know, Britain politically, like you said, was winding down in Afghanistan. And it's funny that all, especially the Marines that I speak to, you know, they join for a specific reason because they want to serve and they want to put into action what they've been trained to do. So during your resettlement, did you have any struggles changing that mindset, or was it all you know plain sailing because you knew what you knew where your strengths were and what you wanted to do? I definitely wasn't plain sailing, um, and I don't think it is for anyone. Um, you know, one of the one of the worst things that happened to me, if I could talk about the sort of one you know, really painful lesson that I learned, was. Um, I applied for, I, I was sort of open to doing anything, anything, you know, I didn't really have a sort of clear goal of what I wanted to do, I just needed a job really, and I think that's probably true of many people leaving the military, um, and I ended up um, going to a sort of selection process with uh, a super yacht broker, um, and I was like, that, that sounds interesting enough, you know, sell super yachts to rich people, I could probably, probably do that. Um, and basically, uh, they put me through a selection process. I, I sort of did quite well. Um, and they offered me a position at the end of it. And I was like, brilliant, you know, job done. At which point, I sort of stopped networking and I started telling people, you know, I've been offered something because I trusted people on what they said. 
And um, rather disappointingly, these are a couple of, uh, actually, there were some ex-military people there that were sort of making these commitments to me. Um, so I sort of thought, you know, I, I can probably trust them on their word. Um, and then basically things went very quiet. Um, and I found out through a subsequent contact in another company that the, the CEO, whose idea it was to bring in all this sort of talent from outside of the industry, had been sacked. I spent, I think it was two or three days, calling two to three times a day to try and find out what was going on. Basically, they just decided that they weren't going to go ahead with the scheme. So suddenly I had, I think, a month before I stopped getting paid with no job because this this is what had happened. And I guess the kind of key learning, I, the key lesson I learned from that is there's no job until there's wet ink on a contract. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't exist. Um, so you keep going, you keep networking, you keep pushing as hard as you can um, because until you've got that really firm commitment from someone, no, you, it just doesn't exist. There's nothing there. Um so that was kind of that was, I guess, the one area that I really struggled with, um, realizing that that actually you you can't necessarily trust people on their word in this civilian world, which is unfortunate, but that is the reality. I've lived in a bubble where where people are. It's very easy to trust people, and I think I, I got a bit of a rude awakening coming out of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, in terms of like the resettlement process, then, how did you find that? In terms of um, what the Navy or Marines provided you in terms of support during that last 12 months? What was your experience with that? Um, so, I, you know, I went, I did everything that sort of everyone else does. I kind of went through the CTP. Um, I thought I thought it was okay. I took sort of quite a lot from that. I think the key thing that you have to have when you're leaving the military is this mindset of any of the support or help to get me a job is a bonus, but ultimately, this is up to me. Um, this is about how this is about how I successfully navigate this transition. No one is going to offer me something off the back of my experience because um, that's just not the way the world works. So I kind of had this idea that, um, or I very quickly understood that kind of this is a game, uh, and I've got to learn how to play that. And I think, in terms of the best resource that I found. Um, there's a book called What Colour Is Your Parachute by a guy called Nelson Nelson Bowles. It's on Amazon. He, he updates it every year. And I think it, it, that was so helpful to me because it, it showed me how the sort of recruitment and hiring game worked. Um, you know, if, if, if an organisation wants to, wants to hire someone, the first thing they do isn't put together a job spec and go to market. They ask people in their network. You know, and there's this kind of idea that if if 90% of jobs come from networking, 90% of your time should be focused on networking. Um, and so I basically took that and really took it to heart from what colour uh, is your parachute um, and really applied that. Um, in terms of the, the, the sort of courses I did, um, I did Prince too because I was sort of interested in project management, but um, probably looking back at it, maybe didn't need to. It was probably a nice to have, not a need to have. Um, I did a, a three-week course at Manchester Business School called, called the Advanced Achievement Course, which, which was basically a bit like a, a sort of mini MBA um, and where we would cover something in a lecture, you know, perhaps an MBA course would maybe do a term on it. 
Um, and the reason I did that was because I wanted to be able to sit down when I was meeting people and say, look, you know, th this is what I've got. These are my transferable skills. Um, but this is what I don't have. And I'm well aware of that. And this is an example of me trying to... Um, me trying to do something about a sort of development area weakness. And I knew that I was demonstrating a sort of sense of um, knowing myself, knowing my strengths, knowing my weaknesses, and then doing something about that, which I think would have put me in a, in a sort of better position. Um, I think the best advice I had when I left was, um, was, you know, remain broad. You don't know enough about anything to rule it out. So go and have a conversation with everyone in any industry and ask them about um, ask them about it. You know, tell them what it is you like to tell them what it is you're good at, and then ask them. Look, did, are these people with my skills and the things that I enjoy? Are they successful in your industry? Um, because, for example, if you're like me and not particularly numerate, you know, it, this is kind of obvious. But there's no way I'm going to make a good accountant because I don't enjoy working with numbers, and I'm not very good at it. Um, but if you don't know that about yourself, if you sort of haven't done that self-analysis, what you can do is is end yourself finding up with a that you're good at, and I think that's the transition. Yeah, you sort of have to um, sit back and reflect and think about what you want to do, and but also why you want to do it. You know, everyone talks about Simon Sinek at the moment. You know, what is your why? Um, and I think that really hits home for, or should hit home for people leaving the armed forces because I know when I left, I, I thought I was just going to go into maritime security, you know, earn £600 a day and work six months of the year. Now looking back, that is not advice I would take up again because it was probably the most naive thing I could ever think of. But at the time, that's what I thought the natural path was. And I think a lot of people leaving the forces do think the roads are paved with gold sometimes where when and that isn't the case and that the, the reality of the world is that the competition is tough yeah i think i think that's absolutely true and you know what i you know a lot of people will say you know i, I want to go into financial services or consulting i want to i want to make the, the sort of big bucks i want to make you know great money and i just i just challenge that often with people slightly and say well you didn't join the core because you wanted to earn loads of money. So why do you want to do this now? You know, don't look at the sort of civilian job market from a sort of very blunt perspective of, um, you know, I just need to, I just need to earn sort of plenty of money because ultimately it's, that stuff doesn't make you particularly happy. You need to, again, you know, you talk, you talked about the whole sort of reason why your kind of purpose element, you need to work out, I think what makes you tick. You know, what did you love about being in the military and perhaps what did you not love so much and find a find a role or find a career that, that matches those um, the things that you enjoy doing and that you're good at and from your experience now you know you, you go into these organisations and sort of transition military leadership to corporate leadership what are the strengths you see from people leaving the armed forces that they do have to offer in, in, you know, in the corporate environment well, I think that um, I think that what what we have is a very very good and very high level of soft skills, um, and often we almost don't realise that because in the military most people have those things. 
Um, and those are the kind of areas that you want to double down on. Okay. So, for example, if you're leaving at maybe say 30 years old, um, and you're you're sort of trying to get yourself into, um, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the insurance sector. Let's take that as an example. Um, what you want to do is 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 network with the people, ideally with a military background. A, because they'll understand what you've got, and B, because they'll understand what you haven't got. So that instantly they're kind of on the inside track on 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 you as an individual. Um, but also, most of the time, you know, anyone with a military background or anyone that kind of gets what we have got will say things like, "Look, you know, insurance isn't especially complicated. I can teach you eighty percent of what you need to know within two to three years. But what I can't get, or what I what I can't get from most people in this market is the selection of soft skills that you have. So, for example, as a leader in the military, you know that your job is all about driving the performance of those people that work with you. You are there to make them better. Because if you think about you know, serving overseas in somewhere like Afghanistan, the better my guys can do their job, the more effect that we have on the enemy, whatever they may, that may be. So our job is all about making them better. In the commercial world, it's absolutely the same, but rarely is that understood. This sort of concept of servant leadership doesn't really exist. Um, yet if you bring that into an organization, uh, if you bring your sort of military mindset into an organization, that concept of servant leadership being one of many that you'll have and understand, you will start to add value and start to change the culture because you'll lead by example. You have to be guarded not to become like everyone else in those organizations, you know, not to start to turn up to meetings like late, which is, generally speaking, completely acceptable in the com commercial world. That's something um, I struggle with. <laughs> um, you need to remember, you know, what you've got and why the, why the military does things. You know, timekeeping is such an obvious one, um, but... Companies don't really see it, you know, they don't sort of see that attention to detail, that discipline in terms of people turning up late for meetings. They don't really think about that. Um, and you just need to consistently get used to it and, and sort of lead by example, I guess. Yeah, great. Like I said, um, that's something I struggle with still to this day when people are even two minutes late. My, you know, my, I start switching, wondering where they are because it does have that knock on effect. Like other people are waiting for that room. And as petty as it yeah. sounds, it's you know it just doesn't start on the right foot. But we could talk about that all day. Um, Roderick, <laughs> I think the listeners are going to get so much value out of that insight. So thank you very much for that. If we do want to, if any of the listeners want to reach out to you, are you available on any social media? I know you're quite active on LinkedIn. Is that the best place to to catch you? Yeah, probably. Um... So very happy to connect with anyone on, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, if people write me a message, I normally respond within a couple of days. Um, if people want to meet me for a coffee, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I can't always do it, you know, within a short space of time, but I will always make time for people. Um, what I would ask is that, that if anyone wants to do that, very happy to have that conversation. But um, the majority of my advice uh, and, and the lessons that I learned is in, in something that I wrote with a guy called Matt Hammond called the Resettlement Guide. So if you just Google Reset Junior Officers Resettlement Guide um, and Leadership Forces, it should pop up. And it's about 25 to 30 page PDF document 
targeted at junior officers because, I mean, that was the path that I came through, but the lessons are relevant to anyone leaving the military. My strong request is that if someone wants to have a conversation with me, they read that first because we can have a much better conversation once you sort of had a, that and got a better sense of what it is you want to do. But, yeah, very happy to connect with people. And it is a very good read. You know, I wasn't a junior officer, but I took a lot away from it. Um, so, yeah, highly recommended. Roderick, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy man, but like I said, I think the listeners will get a lot of value out of this conversation. And good luck with the rest of the year. No worries. Thanks, Jack. You too.